0: Um, If you were here about two years ago, we were probably in the book of Matthew. Um, It seems like we've been here forever, Uh, and we're continuing on, and we're looking at the 20th chapter, and just as a recap um, of where we've been at, Matthew 18 and 19 and 20 all focus on the disciples trying to figure out who's the greatest. Um, and it's this whole issue of pride. And, and Jesus is constantly teaching them that to really be great, you need to be, to serve others. You need to be a servant of all. That the, the last will be first, the first will be last. And so he's going through this, and we just got through with the parable of um, the workers in the vineyard. And showing that there's just equality in God's economy. That there's not this hierarchy of greatness. And so he's been emphasizing that. And now we come to these three verses, sort of set right in the middle. And you almost wonder if they're an aside. Because he goes from one parable, and then he we'll go and see how um, the next two stories are the disciples still trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Um, But we have these three verses in chapter 20, uh, 17, 18, and 19. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside along the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and discourage and to crucify. And the third day he shall rise again. These verses are very clear. There's no question what they mean. The words are simple. The thoughts are simple. The terms are precise. There's no question. It's very clear exactly what he said, and exactly the way he said it, and exactly the way he intends it. And this is the third and the last time that he will predict his death. Um, He did it once in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, and another time in chapter 17, verse 23. And the first one he shared, and then there was a little bit more detail in the second time. And now the third time, he just doesn't say he will die and rise. He doesn't just say he will be crucified and rise. But now he talks about the pain. He explains that he will be betrayed. He will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And then he will be handed over to the Gentiles because he will be condemned and then they will he will be mocked, he will be scourged, and finally crucified. And then finally after all of that he will rise from the dead. And these verses make it clear that the suffering of Jesus Christ were no accident. It was all part of his plan. Um, There's no miscalculation. There's no, wow, what went wrong on our plan for a revolution? This was exactly the plan. Um, In fact, the first recorded words spoken out of the mouth of Jesus were, I must be about my father's business. And his last words are, it is finished. So he has a plan. There's a plan for his life. He knows what's going to happen. And he's got to be about his father's business. And then when it was over, he goes, Okay, it's done. I fulfilled my purpose. He he knew why he was on earth. And he knows exactly what is going to happen. And he's going to do it anyway. Um, can you imagine living your whole life waiting for the moment of Calvary. And Jesus knew from the time he could reason what his life was going to be. He knew he was going to be going to a cross. He knew he was going to be suffering. He knew all of that. Um, He saw Calvary from a distance all his life. And he chose for his disciples, he chose for us, that. And here he's reminding his disciples of that. So this isn't any surprise, guys. I'm going to have to die for you. And that has always been the plan. Um, and so let's look at the passage. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside along the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. As you go on in verse 29, you realize that there is a crowd of people with Jesus. It's Passover time. They would normally be going to Jerusalem anyway. But now they have an opportunity to not only go to Jerusalem, but they get to go with this man named Jesus who's been doing some miracles. He's been feeding people, he raised somebody from the dead. He's, you know, all these miracles. And now we get to go just sort of travel along with him. And hopefully, he'll do a little few miracles for us too. And so, he's, this crowd is following him. And on the way, he feels this need to communicate to his disciples. And I can just imagine, he's got this crowd around him, and they're all going. And he says, Guys, time out. Come on with me. I just, I just want to show you something that's really important for you to hear. So, he pulls him off to the side. And they're going through Jericho, which is about 850 feet below sea level, going up to Jerusalem, which is about almost 2,500—I think about 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's about a 3,000-foot difference, and so it is going to be a steep ascent. And I can just imagine sitting there on the side of the road saying, "We're going up there. We're going up to Jericho." And and now in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it sort of expands on this. And Mark says the disciples were, and he uses two words, amazed and afraid. They were both amazed and afraid. And the reason for this is because they knew the hostility of Jerusalem. They've had to deal with this on Jesus' journeys. And they know that the Pharisees, they know that the chief priests, they know that the scribes, They know that he is not going to be welcomed in Jerusalem. And so they are, wait, we got to go up there? Um, And the word amazed here isn't amazed like an awe. It's amazed like, this is totally confusing. This does not register in my mind why God would be sending us there. Why Jesus would be going there. Um, And they knew that hostility. In fact, if you, took, if you look up John chapter 11, verse 16, when Jesus said we we're going to go to Bethany, which is in the same area, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said, we'll all go with you and die too. So he's fully expecting, okay, we're going to go, but we're going to die. So you can understand why they're a little bit afraid. And why they're amazed, why this just doesn't make sense, because they've still been thinking that we're gonna have this king that's gonna finally rule, and we're gonna be okay. Now, how many of you have ever believed something for a long, long period of time, and you were revealed that what you believed wasn't true, and even though intellectually you believed that it wasn't true, you still behaved as if it was true? Anybody? How many of us know that the physical building of a church is not the church? But how many people will walk into a church and say, this doesn't feel like church? Because intellectually we know, but emotionally, because we've lived with something for so long, we still wrestle with this behavior shift that says, this is what is really true. And so I'm going to function based on what is really true instead of what may feel comfortable. And for the disciples to feel that Jesus is going to go up there and not be the king, that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Just as an aside, this is also the first time that Jesus has talked about a crucifixion. The first two times he mentioned his death, he just says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Okay, well, everybody does. But this is the first time he says a crucifixion, and that just does not connect with them. Because a crucifixion is for the worst of all criminals. And that is the most humiliating way to die. So, you know, they've got to wrestle with all kinds of things that they are they are confused They're afraid, uh, unable to understand the whole situation. But Jesus is determined. And the reason is because this is the plan. This is why he came. This is his purpose. It has to be that way. In fact, that's not all he said. Um, That's just all the part that Matthew records. Because if you look in some of the other chapters... or gospels you will see in Luke 1831 it says behold we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished so he said I'm just fulfilling the prophecy that has been written thousands of years ago that this is what I have to do it's the culmination of the redemptive plan of God uh, and you, so you can go back through the Old Testament and go through it and find chapter and verse over and over again predicting this. And the death of Jesus Christ is the primary event in history. And it's also sort of that thread that goes through the scripture and ties it all together. The Old Testament led up to it. And then we have the, that whole aspect of what it meant. For Jesus to die for the sins of humanity. And so Jesus says. We go to Jerusalem. Um, And they figure they're going there for the Passover. They didn't realize. That they're walking with the Passover lamb. Um, And now he adds his own prophecies. Because not only did he talk about that. But now he says. And not only that. When we go to Jerusalem. The son of man will be betrayed. The chief priests and to the chief priests and the scribes. They shall condemn him to death. They shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock him, to scourge, to crucify, and the third day he'll rise again. He's predicting all the things that are going to happen to him. Once again, he's proving that he is God through all of this. Only God can make history before it even occurs. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Um, Now, I have never really thought through this before like I did this time. I've always thought about Christ going to Jerusalem and carrying his cross, being beat. I've, I've always focused on the sufferings of Jesus from a physical perspective. Um, and when you, if you go to see the passion of the Christ, you will also walk away recognizing the depth of the physical pain that Christ went through. But then I began to think about his suffering in a little bit different way. In Luke 24, 26, he sa- it says he suffered many things. Not just this physical pain. And that the depth and scope of his suffering was beyond anything I had ever thought. Um, I was telling the group that we, that we get together and pray. Um, I really, I really don't like writing sermons. Um, I don't like presenting them, I just don't like writing them. And the reason why is because I'm going through these things and I go, if this is so true, it just reveals to me how much I sometimes fall short of fully understanding the power of God, the grace of God, the depth of God's love, and how how simple and selfish I can be. So far too often, I, I'm like the disciples, so self-oriented, so centered that I don't even Get the message that Jesus is trying to present. Um, And this is one of them. The suffering. Um, The suffering of being rejected. Just try to imagine the times in your own life when you have felt rejected. And the emotional suffering of people being there with him and then just turning away from him. The suffering of being despised abandoned, filled with sorrow and grief, getting no esteem and no respect. The emotional suffering of that. Um, And remember, he's being despised, rejected, and this is not one who's ever deserved it. And he never felt it until the incarnation. Until he came to earth, he didn't feel those things. And then you have the suffering of bearing other people's griefs, of carrying other people's sorrow. And think about the sorrow that you may have felt when somebody you know has gone through grief, or the grief that you've experienced, and then think about that, that Jesus went through that day in and day out of his life. That he knew that all this was going to happen And so from the time he was 10 years old, he knew all of this was going to take place. Here he is, all alone, bearing all the sins of the world, a cosmic kind of divine loneliness. There's also the tremendous suffering of oppression, of affliction and silence. He can't even speak. He can't even defend himself. He can't push them away and say, stop it. I'm the Son of God. Enough is enough he can't defend himself. He has to suffer in absolute silence. He has to keep his mouth closed and suffering knowing you're right, a suffering of knowing when you're right, but still you can't defend yourself. Knowing you're just, you're holy, you're pure and good and not being able to say it. Now how contrary is that to us when we suffer and how quickly do we want to defend ourselves? Well, I said, I didn't do anything wrong. Wait, I've been just, holy, and pure. You know? How to defend ourselves? The suffering of a false judgment. Knowing that you hadn't done anything wrong and you didn't deserve any of this. Because there was never any violence or deceit in them. And then the suffering of betrayal. The overwhelming suffering when someone close to you violates that intimacy and then seeks to destroy you. The ugly sin, the deep pain of being betrayed by a friend as he turned him over to the chief priests and the scribes and they condemned him to death. Now anybody who's gone through a divorce fully grasps the understanding of what it feels like to be betrayed. To be abandoned. And this is... Try to just multiply that over and over again by what Jesus is feeling. John put it very simply. He came into his own and his own what? Received him not. Doesn't matter that you came and you gave your life to me. It means nothing to me. Take it to somebody else. Um, Isaiah said he was despised and rejected of men. He was the stone the builders rejected. They didn't want a thing to do with him. Again, betrayed by a friend. And then to add to that, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only has he been rejected by men, he's been separated from his father, separated from God. All the disciples forsook him and fled. He didn't have anybody. Rejected by the people. Rejected by the disciples. Alienated from God. Um, And in all of this, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23, he never retaliated. Took it in silence. I can't comprehend that. I can't imagine that. Um, I can understand emotional pain and I can relate to losses and I can relate to rejections and betrayals and all of those things I can relate to that but I just cannot comprehend the depth of the emotional pain not just the physical pain but the emotional pain that Christ went through I mean if you've ever been accused, or if you were accused of something for which there was severe penalty, penalty, and you weren't guilty, and you weren't guilty, we'd be screaming our heads off. If somebody accused us of something, and there was a penalty, we'd be doing whatever we could to get out of it. Um, but in silence, he had to accept the responsibility for sin that he never committed that sin that we did and he took that in silence and all the guilt of all the people that ever lived was put on him i can't imagine any pain or suffering more terrible than to be accused of that and to have to carry that and then to be on the cross and say my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and all of this <laughs> goes right over the heads of the disciples. Just as all of this for so many times has gone right over the head of me, that I sometimes just don't even realize the depth of suffering or the depth of what Christ has done. Because in the next breath, they're asking which of them can sit on the right hand and the left hand of God. Okay, God, that's all good. I get that. But which one of us is going to sit on your left and which one on your right? (laughs) So amazingly insensitive. And then, if you want to add one more, the suffering of unsympathetic friends. The suffering that comes when you need somebody. When you're telling somebody the deepest area of pain in your life. And they go, okay. Okay. So what are we going to do tomorrow? Or what about this? Instead of even being able to grasp it, they're on with their own agenda. Um, I think that the Lord was going to suffer for us. And the reality is we really can't appreciate that. We really can't appreciate the cross until we and ourselves in our own hearts we capture what that really means. And the unfortunate thing, again, in our prayer time this morning, um, as we were praying, we're thinking about all the people that will come to church on Easter, and that'll be it. They won't come again until Christmas. I mean, this room will have almost (laughs) twice as many people in it next Sunday, if it's true to form from last year. and yet how many people won't hear the message they won't understand they'll just go right over their heads um so we cannot appreciate the cross until we ourselves in our own hearts we capture what that really means and i don't just mean it in the human sense of looking upon the cross which only the criminals would endure but in looking at the cross, and not only in terms of the physical pain, but the emotional pain and the suffering that Jesus underwent for us. And until we realize the significance of God sending his son to die on a cross for us, we will not understand the seriousness of our sin or the glory of his love. It'll just be another thing that happens and it'll just go right on by. The reality of the cross is essential for us, to, for us if we are to understand the grace of God. And Jesus is setting that before his disciples now. And he continued to set it before all of his disciples until today. But then he says something at the end of verse 19 that once again looks like it went right over the heads of the disciples. The third day he will rise again. This has never happened before, folks. So, Jesus is saying a couple of things. Number one, crucifixion, pain, suffering. And by the way, after all of that, I'm going to rise again. This is all brand new information. Suffering's not the end. That there's going to be a resurrection. The grave's not going to hold me. I'm going to conquer death. Um. How could they miss that? The same way that people miss it today. Uh, They're so caught up in what's going on in their own lives that they don't take time to truly ponder what Jesus is saying. Because they must have thought about dying. They must have thought about some of those things. Um, But what would keep them from asking? What would keep them from asking? Whoa, whoa, Jesus, time out. I need to ask a couple clarifying questions here. Number one, you said crucifixion. Now we know that crucifixion is only for the worst criminals. Are you sure you're gonna be crucified? And what does that mean for us? And and this idea of of rising again after three days. I, I mean, I know you did it for Lazarus, but you're the one that's going to be in the tomb. Who's going to roll the stone away? Who's the one who's going to come in and tell you to get up and walk? I mean, you would just think that there'd be these questions. None. None. Instead, well, next question. Who's going to be, who's going to sit on your left and on your right? Can you comprehend that? And I think, when I'm sitting there going, how many times has God revealed to me some really significant spiritual truth? Instead of pondering on it, instead of reflecting on it, instead of allowing it to transform me, instead of allowing it to change me, instead of me just being obedient to it, I say, okay, well, what are we having for dinner tonight, Gwen? What's next? And I don't take the time to see the significance of what all this means. So he said, you people have been talking about what it means to be rewarded in my kingdom. What it means to be great in my kingdom. In fact, you're arguing about it, and you're continuing to argue about it. But let me tell you what it really means. It means sacrificing. It means letting go. It means... To be great is to die for others, to die to self in my kingdom. You see, self-denial is a spiritual fruit um, which manifests itself in our hearts um, in obedience to Christ, in obedience to the first commandment. And what is the first commandment? Anybody? and have no other gods before you. Have no other gods before you. That is the hardest command to follow, to follow. Because how many gods do we put before Jesus? How many gods do we put before? Well, the biggest one is me. You know, I mean, I could talk about the possessions, but the possessions are nothing. The biggest thing is me, my pride. God, how come you haven't done this for me? God, how come you're not doing this? How come I, I can't trust you in this one, God? I can't do... That's the hardest command for me to follow. Um, I can act like I'm following it, but only God knows my heart. And then how does that get played out? Um, see, I, there's a tendency tendency in my part to want to put myself first. And so when I'm hurt, when I feel betrayed, when I feel abandoned, when I feel that I'm not listened to, when I feel all those things, the first thing I want to do is defend myself. But if I looked at the example of Jesus, ouch. All relationships would be transformed if I looked at the example of Jesus on that. My God is first and I'm not. So the good news There's good news, but it's good news and in it there's always bad news. Because the good news is that we do have a suffering Messiah. But the good news is the reason why is so that he could bring us to God. He could bring us to God. We can't get there any other way, folks. And I know how people like to think that there's many paths to God. And that all God's children will be together in heaven someday. Well, God's children will be. <laughs> that everybody, that, you know, that there is no reason for Christ's sacrifice. Not true. The scripture is clear. The scripture is clear. Um, there would be no good news without the death of Christ. There would be no good news without the resurrection. Francis Schaeffer is famous for saying this. If Jesus is the answer, then what is the question? If Jesus is the answer, then what is the question? Um, we can't understand why Jesus is the answer until you know what the question is. Until you know why Jesus had to die. You can't understand why Jesus is the answer. Until you fully acknowledged your sin You can't fully understand how Jesus is the answer. And then when we do experience the depth of God's love, then we can simultaneously know what it means that the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, eventually, the disciples got it. Not in the next couple of chapters, but eventually they get it. Um, When they get it, seemingly, they get it on the day of Pentecost but they get it and that's also the good news because that means that for those of us who still don't get it there's hope. That for those of us who still don't get it, God's still moving God's still working, God's still transforming and that He is the one who will continue to reveal Himself and we will continue to be transformed into His (laughs) likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word. Um, Father, I just praise you and thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together. Lord, I thank you for the revelation that you brought into my life this week about the depth of sufferings and not just physical, but emotional spiritual, every aspect of suffering that you did for me (coughs) that Lord your death and your life and your resurrection were all done so that we could truly experience freedom in you that we could begin to fully understand what it means to live a life that is surrendered to you and empowered by you. And Lord we just ask that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you who is wrestling with the reality of what it means to put you in their life as Lord and Savior that they can just finally know what the right question is because we already know what the answer is and so father just minister to each and every one of us that we can go forth to minister one to another we ask these things in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ and all god's people said